Hi everyone, welcome to the Black Dog Institute's e-mental health in practice podcast series. I'm Phoebe Holdenson Kamira, a GP with a special interest in mental health. The Lancet published a review led by the Black Dog Institute and the University of New South Wales that revealed doctors are at increased risk of suicide and in their early years of training, one quarter to one third reported significant mental ill health. The researchers said that while this is an increasing issue even before the COVID-19 pandemic, there is emerging evidence that the impact of the pandemic is creating even more mental health problems. So we felt that it's really important to revisit this topic again. And so today's podcast is a condensed version of one of our very early webinars, Webinar 8, Online Mental Health Self-Care for Doctors. The guests on the webinar were Dr. Jill Gordon, who's a GP working exclusively within psychological medicine and who was the president of the Doctors' Health Advisory Service in New South Wales, and Dr. Hilton Coppy, a GP in Lennox Head, New South Wales, and a senior medical educator for North Coast General Practice Training. Dr. Jan Orman, a GP with a special interest in mental health, was facilitating the webinar. In this webinar, we shifted the focus towards asking how we care for ourselves as healthcare practitioners to identify our vulnerabilities and early warning signs of distress, discuss some helpful supports, and also discuss how e-mental health resources can fit into general practice work practices. As it was an earlier webinar in our series, the focus was on general practitioners. However, hopefully the discussion will be helpful for all healthcare practitioners out there. Jan started the conversation by giving some background to the topic of practitioner wellbeing. This has been a popular topic since 2004 when Daniel Cloge released The Conspiracy of Silence, which you may or may not have seen. In that, Daniel revealed that medical practitioners in general have high levels of work dissatisfaction, marital distress and divorce, drug abuse and self-medication and suicide. And that came as rather a shock to the medical community when that report was released all those years ago. In 2013, the Beyond Blue survey showed some startling results. And you may like to just quickly glance down that slide. 10% of doctors reported suicidal ideation in the year prior to the survey compared with 2.3% of the general population. 21% had been diagnosed with depression in the previous year compared with 6.2% of the population. I just wanted to ask Jill to make some comments on those figures, if you would, Jill. I'd be pleased to hear what you have to say about it, especially from the point of view of the Doctors' Health Advisory Service that you're involved in. Thanks, Jan. Yes, from the viewpoint of the Doctors' Health Advisory Service, obviously doctors' health and doctors' mental health is something that uh, we consider to be extremely important. I try to balance, actually, the, the fact that we do need to be concerned about our health and well-being with being alarmist. And actually, the Beyond Blue survey, I think, was not particularly strong in its methodology and does tend to overstate the problem. And in saying that, I'm not suggesting that it's not extremely important, even if all of those figures were halved or even reduced you know, to 25%, they're still, um, they're still highly significant. But on the other hand, I don't want people to be so concerned that they begin to feel as though they're in a terrible, um, terrible profession um, and to doubt 
that they can be both healthy and happy in the profession. Hilton, have you got anything to add to that? Uh, no, look, I, I think I uh, completely agree with what Jill's saying, that uh, medicine offers us so many opportunities to have a rich, fulfilling and uh, worthwhile life. But some of the things that make medicine a great profession are also some of the things that put strain on us as, as human beings and the issues of not making mistakes and being all things to all people can, can make life difficult. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to talk tonight about some of the strategies that might be helpful to reducing the risk for those sort of things. I think it's fair to say that we're at least as vulnerable as everybody else to stress, distress. First, Hilton, do you think general practice is stressful? There are times when it's stressful and uh, there is no doubt about it that the work that we do is very, very uh, important work and it's the sort of work where I try very hard, like I'm sure everyone on mine tonight, to not make mistakes and there are stresses as a result of being like that and the demands of time and conflicting pressures do make it stressful. But I think uh, some of those things can be overcome or avoided, uh, particularly with attention to work hours and the um, amount of patients that we see per hour. So yeah, there, there are stresses, but I think just as much there are ways to counteract those stresses. What about you, Jill? Do you consider uh, general practice a stressful occupation? Well, it certainly can be, and I really like what Hilton's saying because I think he's implying that uh, we have to decide about taking control of our lives and taking control of the way in which we work and what happens as a result of the choices that, that we make. I'm often surprised and disappointed when we seem to see ourselves as passive victims rather than very lucky people who can make all sorts of wonderful choices about working in a way that will, will fit our own um, other interests, other, other needs in our lives. I think that everybody feels stressed sometimes in general practice. I think that would be a fair, uh, fair thing to say. Jan shared with us some research from Shatter and Komen from 1998 about the common stresses for general practitioners. By frequency, Time, paperwork and interruptions were up there, but in terms of severity, litigation, having to do too much in too little time, inadequate remuneration and difficult patient interactions were featured. Of course, there are also normal life stresses thrown into the mix as well. Extrinsic factors such as children, the mortgage, getting sick or getting old, and then intrinsic factors such as personality style, vulnerabilities and personal resilience. She then shared with us a case scenario. The case study is Evan. He's a 38-year-old GP in a large multi-doctor practice in a middle-sized country town. He comes from a medical father, a family, sorry. His father was a general practitioner, a solo general practitioner in a very small town. And that family has high expectations of him, especially in terms of his medical career. He's currently enduring lots of stressors, small children, big mortgage, practice partnership disputes, difficult patients, all the usual stuff. He's a self-confessed anxious warrior, but he's trying really hard and has been some, for some time with some lifestyle measures to 
counteract the fact that he just feels as though he's not flourishing at the moment. He's not enjoying life and he's no longer enjoying the practice of medicine. He's particularly worried about the future of medicine and the future of his career. I think it's interesting that uh, Evan in this case is 38 because I think that that's a time when people are under a lot of stress. They may have recently graduated from their training uh, as Evan's case, they've got small children, big mortgage. It's it's a time when there are a lot of pressures where people are trying to get established in practice. So I think uh, it's a very real scenario, a very real kind of case. Do you think Evan's at any risk? Jill, what do you think? Do you think in this situation he's at any kind of risk? And what kind of risk do you think there might be for Evan? I think the kind of risk he's at is that he's suffering unnecessarily and possibly putting his partner under some stress as well. I don't see him as being as a strong risk for things like self-harm, but he could be tempted to self-medicate, which is uh, very undesirable. So it's more a question of quality of life. What a shame to be 38 and have achieved all the things he's achieved and not be able to enjoy it. I have to go back to the risks that Danielle Claude talked about in that research, the work dissatisfaction or impairment problem, the relationship issues that you allude to, the risks of drug abuse and self-medication and the risk of depression and suicide. These are all very real risks according to the literature for somebody like Evan. Okay, what should Evan do under these circumstances? I think we'd probably agree that he is stressed, possibly showing signs of dis distress, but perhaps not depressed. What should Evan do under these circumstances? What would you do? What is the answer to this as far as you're concerned, Hilton? If, if I were speaking to Evan, I'd be interested uh, to find out how many hours he's working and uh, and see if there were an opportunity for him to reduce his working hours in some way and, uh, and spend more time doing the things that he, he enjoys doing if he's not really enjoying work that much. So I, I guess uh, that would involve me either as B, a friend, or G, his GP, or possibly um, some psychological support if you believe that that's that's what we do in general practice. In Evan's case, in Evan's particular case, what do you think makes him more vulnerable to psychological distress than perhaps someone else might be? Are there any clues in his history that suggests his vulnerability? He also, as someone has already mentioned in the chat box, has huge expectations of himself. And there's those family expectations as well. Is there anything else that might make him vulnerable to distress, if not depression? Jill, what do you think? Well, he's a GP in a large practice in a middle-sized town, but even in a middle-sized town, I think there are issues around privacy and confidentiality, and sometimes they're quite irrational. But I've heard lots of GPs say that they have no one in whom they can confide because they're afraid of somebody else finding out and seeing them as not being able to to cope. So I think that that's an important one. It certainly combines the high expectations from his family and a predisposition to be an anxious warrior 
make a quite a toxic combination. Can you see anything else there, Hilson, that might be an issue that needs to be taken into consideration? Because of his family background, perhaps uh, Evan does put a bit of pressure on himself and perhaps he's maybe doing better than what he thinks that he's doing and uh, it would be nice for him in some way to learn some skills to be able to perhaps better judge the way, how he's going and not be so self-critical. Yeah, I, I think community expectations are really worth mentioning as well and perhaps in a rural community those expectations are greater and perhaps closer and more personal. Would that be right, Hilton, where, where patients often know you better as a person than perhaps in a big metropolitan community? Yeah, I think people, because I work in a pretty small town, so people know me quite well. I actually have to say... Um, People are, I think, more forgiving, in, certainly in the community where I live, uh, and they see me out and about doing things, and I find them to be very respectful of my privacy and my private life. When I used to work in the city, I, I found people actually had higher expectations of me because they didn't know what it's really like to be a doctor, the person. They just see the doctor, the doctor. Um, that's been my experience. I'm not sure if it's true for everyone. I work in a pretty nice town. Um, yeah, it may be different in other towns. I think that's very interesting, and that, in fact, is what the chat box is revealing, but it's not what my assumption would have been, so I stand corrected on that point. I want to introduce you to Professor Kay Wilhelm, who is Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New South Wales, Liaison Psychiatry, in fact. Kay's done a lot of work in the area of doctors' health and has some significant expertise in what um, impacts on doctors to impair their functioning. And I asked her what makes doctors more vulnerable than the other people uh, in the community to mental health problems. And she gave me this list of things that she thought were the most important things uh, acting on doctors. And you can see that we've just about covered the areas that she talked about. The area, the, the there's that particular issue of the difficulty in trusting their care to others and also the guilt about seeking help for themselves when they should be helping others. Early warning signs are signs that our distress is escalating. It's this phrase often used to um, refer to the early warning signs of depressive illness. Uh, but I think we can use it to look at these signs of escalating distress as well and they follow a particular pattern depending on your personality style. Recognize, learning to recognize them is really important because it allows us to recognize when we need to do something about our distress. Can you see what Evan's early warning signs are in that case? Jill, what would you say the early warning signs are that we need to see? The, what we always refer to as the anhedonia, but when when we don't enjoy the things we normally enjoy, and uh, he's not enjoying his guitar so much, um, he's becoming somewhat negative about general practice and its future, and work isn't so satisfying. So there's just an overall sense of a grey blanket settling, despite the fact that he's he's being quite sensible with lifestyle measures, but. It just doesn't seem to be working. 
He's he's done the right thing, hasn't he? He's stopped drinking alcohol and done some more exercise. But he's then just not helping for him. And he's got that sense of discouragement and, dis- well, is despair too strong a word about the future of general practice in his career? As you say, he's not enjoying his usual, usual activities. He's a bit distressed by his inability to play the guitar after all these years. And he's got a sense of hopelessness and feelings of failure. And I have to ask you at this point, I wonder if you know what the signs of distress are for you, the points at which you should be thinking about talking to someone, taking a few days off, doing a little more of the activity that you find relaxing. I would encourage you to try and identify those things and perhaps write them down somewhere so that you will be reminded to take action once your distress becomes apparent. I asked Professor Wilhelm to talk about what the ways in which doctors' distress tends to play out in the workplace. And she said that Often it depends on the kind of personality the doctor has, that some people will become irritable and short-tempered, resulting in interpersonal difficulties with reception staff or other doctors in the practice, whilst others will become quite withdrawn and only do the basic necessities of patient care or fall apart around administrative duties. There are the people who have difficulty empathising when they're unwell. And then there are the others who tend to share far too much with the patients, treating the patients as friends rather than maintaining that professional distance. There are people who need drugs or alcohol to continue to work. And there are people who go to work when they're too tired or too sick. And all of these are ways in which patient care can be disrupted by the doctor's distress. So why don't we take action when we can see that we're distressed? What is it that stops doctors from actually seeking help? Hilton, what do you think the answer to that is? Well, I think the most, uh, probably the most likely reason is the doctor not realising they're distressed. So that lack of self-awareness is probably a really big part of uh, a barrier to seeking care. And then uh, let's assume that they, they do get an inkling that they need some help. Uh, the, the things that get in the road of people seeking help are uh, finding time to do it. There's a great deal of concern about confidentiality and what's going to happen to them if they do acknowledge they're distressed. Uh, uh, also, being seen in the waiting room at other people's practices can be embarrassing for some people. Uh, there's, there's often a thing of uh, uh, doctors might worry that they're um, seeking help for something that's minor or petty, um, or they may be embarrassed that they've waited too long to seek help. So th- there's that paradox of, of those issues as well. Um, and I can see you've got a few up on the screen there as well, Jen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that before I put those on the screen, your first answer was the failure to recognise that we're stressed and distressed. Do you think Evan's likely to go and see a psychologist at this stage? 
Jan felt that there's a very real possibility that Evan would not seek the professional advice of a psychologist at this point for all the reasons that Hilton gave earlier. There really is a need for Evan to find some things that might help him that don't involve actually getting face-to-face professional help. And that's where we come to the e-mental health resources that he might use. So what could Evan do online? Evan could do some simple things or he could do some more formal things. He could discover mindfulness, try some creativity, join a support group. Let's talk about all those in more detail. If you haven't heard of it, Smiling Mind is a free app developed with funding from Beyond Blue in Australia, which is a facility for mindfulness that is as close as your mobile phone. Hilton, what would you like to say about Smiling Mind? Well, Smiling Mind is uh, something that I recommend very often for my patients. Uh, All all those things that you've said, um, Jan, are true. Uh, and particularly uh, the feedback I get from my patients is they like that it's Australian. So the the man who does the relaxation exercises or mindfulness exercises has got quite a uh, pleasant voice to listen to. Uh, the other advantage of what they offer is that the meditations or relaxation exercises are, are quite short, so five to ten minutes. Uh, they also are targeted for different age groups, children, adolescents and adults. So... I find it a fantastic um, resource. And when I'm having a bad day and someone comes into the room who needs some uh, relaxation, I just put on the Smiling Mind app and we do it together for five minutes and I reckon that's a good way to earn a dollar. (laughs) I think it's um, a very helpful tool and it's such a good thing to have in your pocket when you need it. Patients tell me that they they stick their earphones in and do it on the bus on the way to work or they, they go to the tea room and do it in the tea room. Um, and I've also, I'm also aware of teachers using it in classrooms in that after lunch hyperactive period just to calm the primary school children down. Um, it's a very nice way to refocus and get back into what you're in the room for. Moving on from that, I just want to tell you about supporting doctors' creative activity. Evan's obviously done some things with music in the past and there are lots of things that he could do in the community, but he might need a little push and a shove to get involved in creative activity again. And Creative Doctors is a group that I'm part of uh, It's a Sydney-based group, but there's a blog, um, as you can see there, and it may be that getting involved in a networking group like that of doctors doing creative things would be a helpful thing for Evan to do. I think that peer support has such a very important role to play in the well-being of health practitioners. Jan told us about some different peer support options available, including closed Facebook groups such as Dr. Doc and GPs Down Under for personal and professional support, as well as our medical defence organisations, many of whom have information and services to help our wellbeing. Of course, each state's Doctors Advisory Health Service and the National Doctors for Doctors Service is a fantastic one. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we now have two new fantastic resources that are not just for doctors, but are for all healthcare practitioners around Australia. 
Hand in Hand provides a free, confidential peer support service for health professionals in Australia and New Zealand with the option for individual or group peer support. The Black Dog Institute has partnered with a number of organisations to develop the Essential Network, a website including videos and mental health assessment tools, as well as uh, a service, a confidential clinical service for up to five visits with a psychologist or psychiatrist. Alternatively, we might want to learn some CBT-based skills online. CBT skills that you can learn online can decrease your vulnerability to stress. The sorts of skills that you might learn include effective problem solving, relaxation strategies, strategies for managing stress and worry, goal setting, communicating clearly and managing life chains. Now these may be things that you think you already know about and I hope you do know a great deal about it but it's really interesting to see them in, in a, a way, presented in a way that they are in these online programs because it's not just good for you, it's, they teach you good ways to teach these skills to your patients as well. If Evan was keen to access an online CBT resource, Jan and Hilton felt that he would want one that he could access anonymously, confidentially, in his own spare time at his own pace. It would probably be important that it's evidence-based and ideally it would be free. A great place to start to find online e-mental health resources is the federal government's online portal called Head to Health. It directs you to all condition-specific resources and has a very cute little chatbot that can help you to get to where you need. Jan shared one particular resource available through Head to Health called This Way Up, which comes out of the St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney and has a very strong resource space to support the different courses. The formal courses contain six modules and can be accessed via self-referral with a $60 fee or through a referral from the treating GP, which I believe they're still currently waiving the access of that fee. There are also four wellbeing courses, including modules on insomnia, mindfulness and coping with stress that can be accessed without signing up to anything. And we might find that Evan is particularly interested in one of those. My Compass is another resource that might be helpful to Evan. It's a program de developed by the Black Dog Institute. It's completely anonymous and free and has a set of 12 modules that can be done in any order at all. There's an initial questionnaire that can provide some recommendations about which modules might be more useful, but essentially you can choose whichever module you want, such as you know problem solving, tackling unhelpful thinking, creating smart goals, and then just go from there. My Compass also provides the option for tracking, whether that's you know you want to track your mood, enjoyment of life, exercise or alcohol use. And that can really provide a lot of insight into one's mental health and the factors that uh, promote it. eCouch is also a resource that's out of the Australian National University. eCouch provides structured CBT for specific conditions including depression, anxiety and worry, social anxiety, divorce and separation and loss and bereavement. Hilton shared with us his thoughts on whether resources like this would be helpful for someone like Evan. But these things are, are great when people are highly motivated. Often if they're not feeling that great, that's the motivation to get started. Then the challenge comes to sticking with it. And um, I often say to my patients, these things are 
very easy to do, but they're even easier not to do. So having that checking in somehow of keeping people on track can be very important. Uh, yeah, that would be the main comment I'd make. There's something that I re is really important that I want to say, and that is that for not one second do I think um, online mental health programs replace face-to-face -face therapy. You've got to bear in mind that they are meant for mild to moderate versions of common mental health conditions, and they help people who can't or won't get um, face-to-face therapy and there are lots of reasons why people can't or won't access face-to-face -face therapy, some of we, which we discussed earlier in terms of Evan and his position as a GP in a country town. So don't go away thinking that I'm trying to support the idea of replacing face-to-face -face therapy. I'm not. The psychologists in particular are very keen on using online mental health programs to augment face-to-face -face therapy, to use in conjunction with face-to-face -face therapy so that the limited number of sessions they have with patients can be used more efficiently whilst the patients learn basic skills online. What do you think about that, Jill? Look, I agree. Augmentation is exactly what it's all about. Uh, in simpler, easier times, bibliotherapy was always an important part of augmenting therapy and it's something that I still use with books like Sarah Edelman's Change Your Thinking, which is a wonderful um, CBT book. So I think for those who like books that you can actually handle, um, that's great for those who actually find being able to go to the computer something that's flexible, available, uh, something to which they respond, then that's great too. I think it's probably time to go back to Evan and we'll learn a little bit more about what Evan did. Evan, in fact, didn't do any of these things that, that all of us will, would be likely to do if we were feeling distressed. And last week he received a very disturbing discharge summary about a former patient a 23-year-old woman who'd been admitted to hospital in the city after suffering a hemiplegic stroke. The combined oral contraceptive pill that he'd prescribed for her eight months earlier had been ceased and she was returning home to his care. Hilton, comments about this? Well, I would imagine that Evan would get a sinking feeling when he read that discharge summary. I'm picturing him getting to work in the morning, maybe it's a Monday, and he's, uh, you know, G'd himself up to get there and face the music and trying to feel positive about the day, and the first thing he sees is this discharge summary, and he might get a bit of a, a sinking feeling and think, oh, my God, have I contributed in some way to causing harm to this person? That's, that's what I imagine that how he might react to this. Um, what I would hope he, how he might react if he'd uh, done some of the things that we'd all been talking about would be to feel concerned for the patient, uh, what's happened, but then to think, well, I must have done some things right because she's coming back to see me. And that, that must say something of the care that I've, that I've offered for her, that she's still acknowledging me as her GP and wants to come back for me to continue her care after she gets out of the hospital. Jill, have you got anything to add to that? 
I completely agree with Hilton. I mean, we all know that despite the fact that this could have happened even in the absence of the contraceptive pill um, and that the uh, risks of prescribing are so very low, uh, very conscientious, anxious, worrying people like Evan are very likely to be hit hard by this and some very rational self-talk is the sort of thing he might have learnt by doing some of the online CBT had he done so. The panel couldn't stress enough the importance of Evan, and in fact all of us, having our own GP. Many of us don't have our own GP, but it's really important to have someone who we trust provide a fresh pair of eyes to our situation and provide care in a way that we simply just can't do for ourselves. The website Doctors for Doctors, which is a collaboration between the State and Territory Braced Doctors Health Advisory Service, provides a fantastic online course to understand some of the challenges Uh, but also the importance of all doctors having their own GP and for doctors to develop their skills in providing care to their healthcare practitioner colleagues. I hope you've enjoyed learning about online resources to promote the well-being of healthcare practitioners. For more resources and information, I really recommend The Essential Network as a great place to start. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.